Dreams in every country. Dreams, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Today's talk is by Paul Barber, a consulting forest pathologist with the West Australian Center of Excellence for Climate Change at Murdoch University, Perth, Australia. He is also the director of Arbor Carbon, a consulting firm specializing in the diagnosis and treatment of tree health disorders. This podcast features his talk on the complexity of diagnosing and managing tree decline in the urban environment. This talk was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. My background is a forest pathologist uh, starting in plantations. In uh, more recent years I've worked in uh, native ecosystems uh, looking at these complex tree declines. Uh, and over the last couple of years, through inquiries uh, from people in the urban area, I've uh, had more of a focus uh, of tree declines in the urban area. And what I've come to realise is um, there are many, many uh, uh, impacting factors, often complex, in the urban environment that don't exist in the, the woodland and forest ecosystems. And this makes diagnosis incredibly difficult. So. I'm planning to talk to you a bit about this today um, and hopefully generate some uh, discussion and, uh, and some questions. Okay, as an overview um, about what I will talk about, uh, the challenges for forest pathologists, uh, there's many of them. Uh, what, are what are the factors that are affecting urban tree health? Uh, and there's many of those as well. Uh, how do we accurately d diagnose these health disorders? Uh, it's very difficult and, and sometimes we can't. How do we manage them? That's the big question and uh, very challenging. The future of diagnosis and management in a, in a changing environment with climate change and the future challenges. Okay, so the challenges for forest pathologists. As I've come to realise, um, many people want a rapid uh, budget diagnosis. Limited budget, they want to know straight away, why is my tree dying? And we can't perform miracles, so this is often very, very difficult. And I tell people we can't do that. Um, they're happy to pay for a visible result. So if a tree's declining, they're happy to have some come, someone come along and prune the dead wood off uh, and keep doing that year after year. They, get, they feel value for money straight away. There's, an, there's a, a direct result, immediate result. But they're less inclined to want to pay for someone to come out and look at the tree and start to diagnose and spend money on testing in the lab, uh, which takes time and, and is, can be very expensive. Uh, because they don't see a, an immediate result. Although, in the long term, that's likely to be a lot more beneficial for the tree. So what? You've told me why my tree is dying. How do I fix it? That's really what, what people want to know. Okay, how do I fix it? That's a big question. They want a result. The other thing I hear and I've uh, been exposed to more in the urban environment is declining trees are dangerous. The tree has dead wood, it's going to fail, it's going to injure someone. I've realised that this, this industry is very focused on risk, which is fair enough, but often declining trees aren't dangerous. They can stand for many, many years, even after they're dead, and not fall over and injure people. So do they have to really come out? They can pr provide very important habitat. If only trees could talk. Okay. Recently I was taken around the site with many declining trees and the person who was taking me said, so why is that one dying? Why is that one dying? And they expected me to tell them straight away just by looking at it. Now if you go to the GP and you walk in and see the GP, does the GP tell you why you're sick straight away without taking your temperature, looking inside your mouth, inside your ears, talking to you about your symptoms? Okay, you need to really do that work and, and, and this takes time, okay, and it's very difficult. If only I could see everything below the ground. Well, there's a lot more below the ground often than there is above. And we find that with many of the diseases, 
it's starting below the ground. Okay, so we really need to have an in-depth look below the ground to find out what's going on, often. When we roll up to a, a site, it's simply a snapshot in time. Okay, those trees may have been there for 10, 20, 50, 100 years longer. Okay, we've had recent catastrophic floods in the eastern states. We've had drought events, major drought events in the western states of Australia. Okay, those, those factors occur and then the symptoms may not result for another six months, year, two years after that. Okay, so we need to know the history. That's very, very important. There are many confounding factors. Knowledge of the tree biology is often limited. We find in Australia, the knowledge of the tree biology of trees that we used as forestry species is very good. But the knowledge of the tree biology of trees in amenity areas often isn't. The research just hasn't been done. Okay, and it needs, it needs a lot more effort. So there's a great deal we do not know. We're always learning. And when we do find a result or we can diagnose, it's often based on knowledge and experience and not years of research. Okay, because the research often hasn't been done. So we need to, to put more of a focus on the research and find the funds for that. Okay, so I'd like to go through and talk about the factors that affect urban tree health. And many of these I'm sure you, you're aware of and some you may not be and haven't thought about, but we'll go through them anyway. And, and you can see that there are many. But in my experience, in the urban development areas in Australia, and this is probably the same in, in, uh, in the US and Canada, and it certainly is the same in, in, in parts of Asia, landscape architects design a landscape. They want an instant result. It looks great. They bring in advanced trees. Looks fantastic. But often, that's expensive because advanced trees are very expensive and unsustainable in, in many cases. So they may bring in diseases, they might, may bring trees into areas where they're not suitable for that site, okay, they may bring in poor stock. So um, those instant treed landscapes often aren't su sustainable. Many trees that we are developing around are ex-woodland trees. They've grown in that environment, they've adapted to it, and all of a sudden we put all this pressure on them. And we can see an example here in this picture, and I'll show you a few more of those. So there are factors that impact upon them uh, you know, as a result of that. And development can result in increased stress, which then uh, you know, poses problems in terms of susceptibility to pests and pathogens, and then uh, inciting decline and then they go, can go into a downward, downward spiral. Okay, so I've got a brief uh, video, and this zooms in on, I suppose, my part of the world, where I come from, in, uh, in Perth, in Western Australia, and shows a, a, la a Landsat image over time. Okay, this is a 15-year period, a trend analysis map. So what we're looking at here is uh, areas that, where vegetation has changed over that period. If we look at this, this area, we've got Perth, the Swan River, and this is the urban area through here, and it's extending now down here, Mandurah, and these, this is now being connected with houses and housing, housing developments. Well, the white area here is vegetation that has been removed previously to 1990. Massive areas, and that's continuing. The northern suburbs, you can see the red and the orange. That's loss of vegetation over that 15-year period. Okay, that's been removed for urban development, agriculture, and so on. Blue areas are increase in vegetation cover over that time, and often what we're looking at are uh, pine plantations that have been harvested and then grown back over that period. Okay, so we can see the, the uh, development through this area is extensive. And the vegetation that remains is highly fragmented, um, so there's incredible pressure, pressure on this urban forest through Perth. Here's some examples of what we do. And we have this tree here, the Eucalyptus gomphocephala, the tuit, found nowhere else in the world, endemic to Western Australia, highly adapted to the high pH calcareous soils, the dominant tree through that landscape. And we're still allowed to cut them down. Less than 30% of them remain. 
the original population. Okay? We have these magnificent trees. We have a road that's gone through the other side, been existing there for years, and now they want to put a new road in, so they decide to put it on the other side of the tree. So obviously there's a huge impact on that tree and the root system. We've had a lot of funding for new buildings in schools. The government decided that they provide a stimulus package to stimulate the building economy in Australia. As a result, lots of schools got new buildings. Okay, and the landscape architects and the, uh, the architects came along and said, right, there's a building, pop it there, trees have to go. Bad luck. And here's a fence that they've put up around that site. Okay, and these were trees on the outside of the fence. I don't know why they cut them down, they just did. That's my daughter's school. Here we have these old river red gums declining and you know, we're parking cars underneath them. Of course we're ca causing more impact and decline on those trees. Here are these chewets. This is near Mandurah, the, a very fast, rapidly growing uh, city south of Perth. Okay, come along, it's an old woodland. Destroy the root system here. The root system of these trees extends miles out here, a long, long way. We've, we've done the air spading on these sorts of trees. They extend for 20, 30, 40 metres. They go a long way in these depauperate soils. Okay, so we can't butcher the root system and expect it to survive and develop around it. That's a development, that's all roads now and parks. Okay, and those trees have died. So what happens? We have this disease decline spiral published in Mannion. This is for tree declines in general. What we have is we have predisposing factors, inciting factors and contributing factors. Okay, really interesting to look at this and see that one of the predisposing factors in here is the urban environment. Okay, it already predisposes these trees to decline. And other factors come along. What other factors that aren't listed here might incite decline? Well, I, I've seen a lot of poor pruning. That definitely incites decline. Construction damage, hail damage. We'll talk a little bit about that. Pathogens and pests. Okay, they can incite decline, and then other factors can come in, contributing factors we call them, and take them to a level where they're beyond the point of return. As pathologists, we are always thinking about the disease triangle. Okay, the host, the environment, and the pathogen or the pest. Okay, you have to have all three of those to have the disease. We have many, many factors in those boxes. Okay. When we have our students working on pathogens, many of the new students coming through now, they're really up to speed on molecular uh, techniques. They love working in the lab, they love extracting DNA, love the sequencing, finding new species, and, and doing a lot of that work. But many of them fail to get out into the environment and spend time in the field. Okay. And that is critical to understanding the disease and the causes of the disease. Okay, you have to do that to get an understanding of the host, the environment, and then the pathogen. Okay, mechanical damage. Well, I see that as one of the most important factors in citing decline, particularly in the Perth urban environment, in our trees. A lot of the problems that result pathogens, pests, and so on, decay fungi, they are the result of the initial damage that was imposed on those trees, the poor pruning, the damage to the roots, and so on. So we've already destined them for decline and death, unless we do something about it. There is an Australian standard, okay, for protection of trees in development sites, for pruning. Many people don't follow it. Okay, the, the, the client might go for the cheapest quote. It's not the cheapest because it's going to cost them a lot more money in the long run. Unnecessary pruning to improve health. I see guys come out, I ask them, so what are you, what are you doing? Oh, well, you know, we're, we're uh, taking the deadwood off and we're going to give it a good haircut. You know, it's good for the tree. Yeah. Well, it's not good for the tree. We know that. 
Okay, it's drawing on those reserves that it needs to produce the epicormic growth. It may look good initially, but it needs those reserves to defend itself against other factors. And are we potentially spreading pathogens? Okay, so we can see here a huge flush cut on this, this tree here, this marry. It's got a massive canker underneath it caused by a fungus called Quambolaria. Are we potentially spreading the spores from one tree to the next? They've got very sticky spores, this fungus. Okay. So there's a hygiene issue, I believe, as well. Chemical injury. Now, I've been following a little bit of the literature in the US recently. There's been quite a bit of uh, discussion about chemicals used in the turf industry, how they might be impacting on trees. There's not a lot of consideration given to that here in Australia, or particularly in, in, uh, in Perth. What can chemicals do to the tree? Well, we often don't know what they do to the tree. No one's done the work on them. But certainly some of those chemicals incite disease symptoms. Okay? They cause decline, and people may not even know it was, was the chemical that caused it, unless you do the, the analysis, which can be quite expensive. So these chemicals can cause a loss of fine roots. It may not be an instant death, okay? It might be a slow decline, a loss of the fine roots, loss of connection to the mycorrhizal fungi, nutrient deficiencies result, okay? And they, they're triggered into decline. The symptoms can be very similar to nutrient deficiencies. So if we look at these, these examples here, we've got a lemon-scented gum here that's going yellow, okay? The chlorosis in the foliage. That's in, been induced by herbicides. Here we've got some peppermint trees in a, a caravan park where they want to develop. They just died suddenly. We can see the symptoms in the foliage. Okay, they started to re-sprout. Okay, that's classic iron deficiency symptoms. Okay, induced by a chemical that probably acts on the photosystem 2 pathway. Okay. You can see here. So, so they can cause similar symptoms to other things. Even the application of fertilisers can have a negative effect on, on uptake of trace elements and, and induce nutrient deficiencies. So there's a major challenge here for having turf and trees together. And we all know where that happens, obviously in golf courses, okay, and ma major parks and gardens throughout the world. So anything like this can increase the susceptibility to pests and pathogens. And here we have nutrient deficiencies. Okay, we have a marry here with a deficiency. We have a jarrow going yellow. Okay? Again, classic symptoms of trace element deficiencies. And many factors can cause that. We've just discussed some of those. Even pests and diseases can cause symptoms of nutrient deficiency. So it's really important to diagnose what's causing the problem to then try and manage that problem. It can lead to further problems, induce water stress. Uh, it can be more attractive to, they can become more attractive to pests. Leakage of solutes from the roots can increase the incidence of pathogens. So things like Phytophthora, they can be more attracted to uh, species that are um, uh, leaking particular trace elements from their roots and so on. So there, there are many different nutrient deficiencies and we actually don't understand uh, the symptoms of many of those because the work hasn't been done. Forestry species, yes. Many of the others, no. We don't even know what the adequate levels of particular micro and macronutrients are in many trees. So we need to do the research to find out. Water stress, big issue in the west. Not such a big issue in the east at the moment, in Australia. Plenty of water. Okay. But in, uh, in, the, in Western Australia, we've had a massive decline in rainfall over the last 30 years. Huge. Many of our streams have dried up. They've decoupled from the, the water tables. Okay. It's the first time they've ever, ever dried up. Okay. It's really critical over there at the moment. 2010... We had the driest winter on record, one of the hottest years on record. Okay? We'd be silly to think that that's not going to affect the trees, even in the urban environment. 
Many of the local governments have switched off and, and in, uh, their, their irrigation to save water, as you would have heard Greg talk about yesterday. Okay, that's having major impacts on trees. So as a result, we get many effects. Loss of absorbing roots, loss of beneficial soil organisms, leaf and stem damage, higher winds, increased evaporation from the soil and so on. Frost is becoming more intense and more regular in the southwest and western Australia. All the models tell us that. Okay, so there's going to be more frost events. And again, this all increases the susceptibility to pests and pathogens. Waterlogging. Well, this is very pertinent in this part of the world, in the, the eastern states. There's been massive waterlogging and, and flooding uh, all through Queensland and New South Wales, Victoria. There are going to be many declines and deaths of trees as a result. They may not be immediate, but it will happen over the next six months, years, you know, one year, two years, five years, and so on other factors will come in because that has been a trigger event. So that is why we need to know the, the site's history, need to know what's happened in the past. As a result, you can get fine feed of root depth, death, predisposition to root pathogens. Phytophthora loves water. It has swimming spores. Okay? That's going to be rife in, in parts of the eastern states. Insect pests, well, we have many of them. Uh, many, many, many different groups, many undescribed species. Uh, many, we don't really know the biology very well. Okay, but unfortunately, decreasing number of entomologists. Okay, decreasing funding for those positions in institutes. And the same with pathologists, the same with taxonomists. Okay, so that's not a good ratio there. Non-endemic tree species that come in to areas, for example, if we bring a, an eastern states eucalypt into to the west or a tree from overseas, they can often have what we call a honeymoon period. Okay, a period when they're not really attacked by anything. Nothing's really adapted to them. And then after a number of years, bang, there's been a host jump. And all of a sudden that can be, that can be catastrophic. And it's very common to have these host jumps. And here we have a picture of psyllids uh, on one of our eucalypts. And we can see the resulting decline, and that happens after year after year until eventually the trees may die. In the urban environment, as opposed to woodlands, they can have unique vectors, vehicles, humans. It's been shown that some of these insects, the larvae drop onto cars and they might move along and be transported, or a certain stage of the insect might be transported down the highway. Okay, so they have those unique vectors in the urban environment, which they don't often have in other areas, and they're very often cyclical and seasonal, and these cycles and, and seasonal uh, fluctuations are changing because the climate's changing. So less frosts in an area may mean less of those insects get killed, population numbers increase, and it can wipe, start to wipe out trees. Obviously, that's happened with the mountain pine beetle in the US, but that, that is going to happen in areas in Australia as well. Many of these insects are attracted to trees under stress. So stem borers, for example, attack a lot of our eucalypts, and they attack those trees because they're water stressed. The trees are sending out signals, and the, the insects come and attack them. Bark beetles are the same. We've seen quite a lot of these the Ips beetle and, and bark beetles attacking our trees in the west, bringing fungi in. They're attacking the trees often because they're stressed for some other reason. And then they're, they're causing that decline and death. Pests can cause initial wounds, resulting in decay fungi entering the trees. And these pathogens can be an initial inciting factor and, and other pests can follow. So often we see termites in trees. Okay. People think, oh no, termites, you know, it's, that's, we've got to get rid of them. But they're actually coming in off and following the decay in the tree. It's actually the decay, the initial factor, that is the major problem. The control of these is very complex in the urban environment and conventional techniques used for controlling insects are, often aren't suitable. So foliar sprays, for example, we know you can't often use them in, 
in areas in the urban environment. And they're toxic to humans. And even the injectables can be toxic to the beneficials, the bees. And when the leaf litter falls to the ground, that can be toxic to the soil microorganisms, okay, the things that break down the leaf litter. And we often don't understand what the impact of these chemicals is on tree health. Root collar and basal stem pathogens. Now this is a, uh, a banksia in my front yard. Now I brought plants, native plants in from a nursery into my front yard. I brought uh, mulch in. Okay, and all of a sudden I had this rapid death of this banksia. I loved that banksia. It was, it was growing really well from a seedling. Came home one day from, from work and said, that doesn't look right. Okay, a couple of days later it was looking worse. I looked at the base, had a big lesion coming up from the base. It was Phytophthora. Now, I'd either brought it in with the plants or I'd brought it in with the mulch because I'd had nothing die there previously. So, you know, these root, collar and basal stem pathogens can be devastating. Spread often by root-to-root -root contact, swimming spores, Phytophthora, some of the major genera in Australia that cause problems, Phalinus, Ganoderma, Armillaria, Phytophthora. You've heard, heard about some of these already. And urban conditions can favour the spread and infection of these. In many turfed areas, they're irrigated. Okay, so the irrigation in summer is like having perfect conditions for these pathogens. It's warm and it's wet, and they love that. So we see often these problems are worse in turfed areas. I think hygiene is, is critical, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. But it highlights with these, it's important to diagnose the pathogen because then you know how to, well, you can start to learn how to manage it. Different chemicals work differently for different pathogens, okay, if you're going to use a chemical approach. Stem and foliar pathogens. Some of these are latent. They sit there in the tree, like the Botrytis feriaceae. They sit in the tree. You can isolate them from living, healthy tissue. Okay, it's not until the tree uh, undergoes some form of stress and then they start to cause problems. Okay, you can start to see flagging of the branches and, and death from the top down and lesions. Okay, so it's that stress that's driving it. But some are prim primary uh, pathogens. And often they're uh, difficult to, to identify and, and so on. So here we have uh, Micus cryptica on a eucalyptus leaf. And next to it we have the leaf blister sawfly, which is an insect. Okay, similar sort of symptom, very different organism. Here we have a massive uh, Quambularia canker on our Mary trees. This is quite devastating in our, our population of Mary, which is the Carimbia calophylla. And here, inside here, it causes this perennial canker. Often spread by wind, splash, insects. They're amazing organisms. Fungi are absolutely amazing. And control can be uh, very difficult and expensive. Okay, how do we control Microsorella cryptica? This one here, when it has ascospores on the top, the sexual stage, and it has the asexual stage fruiting below. Okay, different dispersal mechanisms. Up, how do we spray the, the top and the bottom of those leaves? So it, it's a real issue. And for many of these, the period of leaf wetness, the humidity, the mode of invasion, the leaf age, etc., can be very important for the disease spread. So if we modify the environment, we can be favouring the pathogen and the, the, the spread of it. So I think breeding for resistance is one option. Okay, we've had an incursion of the myrtle rust into Australia, okay, or the, the guava rust, if you'd like to call it that, Puccinia sidii. That's, it's come into the eastern states. They found it in the nurseries. Now it's out, apparently out through the, the, uh, the treescape. And most of our myrtaceae, it appears, are susceptible to that. So that's particularly, could be particularly devastating. Then you have the vascular wilts. Okay, these are fungi or bacteria that block the vascular tissue and cause sudden wilting. We can see here a, a young eucalypt that suddenly died as a result of infection by Ralstonia. And here, 
the stem showing the, the, uh, the hyphae and the fungal tissue or the vascular system. So basically blocks it up and they, they wilt and die. Often vectored by beetles, a classic case is a Dutch elm disease. Um, have very sticky spores uh, and they're, they're incredibly, uh, it's an incredible relationship between the insect and the fungus. Okay, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. The severity of these bacteria causing, causing these uh, vascular wilts like Ralstonia, that's, that can increase with wet feet. Okay, so again, we're uh, increasing the susceptibility. Okay, so we've talked about the, the different factors that can cause decline of these trees. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the, the complexity. So again, we have the disease triangle. And I've, I've emphasised the, the need for correct diagnosis, okay, in, in order to correctly manage them. Often we can't manage them, but we're learning how to. We find many disorders are incorrectly diagnosed. So, you know, in, uh, in the West, we have a, 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 a drying climate, okay? It's been very dry. So, so the first thing people think about, you know, these trees are dying because of lack of water. Well, what do we do? Put more water on them. But if it's not the water, and it's actually a fungus that's causing the decline, what's the water going to do? It's going to make the problem worse. Okay, so the diagnosis is, is critical. And sometimes we, we need to be able to say we don't know. Okay, and we do see examples and we say we, we just don't know. We think it might be this, but it's incredibly complex. So we need to do more work on it, but often the budget's not there to do the work. So it's a, it's a really difficult situation. As I've spoken about, the different, different cause can have the same symptom. So Phytophthora, for example, that might be feeding on the fine feeder roots can cause those nutrient deficiency symptoms. So we can waste a lot of money, we can lose a lot of trees, and that's not good, of course. And here's an example of that insect-fungal interaction that I was talking about. So we have our own examples in Australia, of course, and here is one in the lemon-scented gum. And we have uh, this massive lesion that's extending up the tree. Okay, what was the cause of that? Well, that was this interaction between a, a bark beetle, a scolitid, and an Ophiostoma uh, stratocystis fungus. Okay, we can see the little bark beetle here, and there's these fruiting bodies, the little necks. It's a beautiful fungus, um, but it's devastating. So how do we do this uh, accurate diagnosis of the disorders? Well, we need the combination of field and laboratory skills, okay? traditional technologies and, and uh, modern technologies to do that. Okay? You can see me here, I'm scratching my head and wondering what's going on, probably frustrated. We're, we're air spading the root system of a, uh, a chewet okay, to look at what's going on. They're declining. Why are they declining? Okay, when we air spade them and have a look at these roots, we see that they just don't, that the declining ones just don't have the fine roots that they should have. They don't have the connection to the mycorrhizal fungi that they should have, which the healthy trees do. This is the very early stages of this research. Um, and then in later years, we were able to work out that uh, something that was playing a role was a new species of Phytophthora that was knocking off the fine roots. So misdiagnosis is very easy, and we've discussed that, and I've discussed also it's very important to determine the history of a site and what's going on. I'd like to give you some recent examples uh, from Perth. Okay, and with a changing climate, we have more extreme weather events. So according to the Bureau of Meteorology, 2010 was one of the driest years, one of the hottest years, and one of the sunniest years on record. Autumn 2011, we had an amazing hail, uh, amazing storm with incredible hail. And we can see here an image of some of those hailstones, and that's six centimetres across. That was absolutely devastating. I was in Hong Kong at the time, and my wife rang me and said, 
You know, the, the lights have gone out, there's water coming in the lounge room, there's hail coming everywhere. It caused a huge amount of damage. Everyone was thinking about the, the cars and the, the, the houses and all the damage that was caused there, but what about the trees? So often that wasn't seen immediately unless you saw the, the foliage that was stripped off the trees. Okay? But here's an example of a, a, a large pine tree that has started dying many, many, many months after that initial hail, hailstorm. And what was the result? When you looked beneath the bark, there were huge lesions underneath that bark. You could see where the hailstones had impacted on one side of the tree, where the weather had come in. And in some trees, we saw lots of bark beetles come in, the ips, and then the blue stain fungus came in and then knocked those trees off. Okay, so it's the initial event, the trigger, the hail that caused that. Here we see uh, a rapid death of a banksia in one of the, the parks. Okay, many of these uh, banksias are what they call phreatophytic species. They rely on the, ground, the groundwater um, for, for uptake of, of water. They tap into that zone. Okay, we've had huge drops in the, the levels of the groundwater in some areas, metres. Okay, so those species can just suddenly die like that. So that's happening throughout the, the uh, Perth urban area. But is it all just drought? Can we blame it all on drought? Well, no, we can't. Okay, there are deaths through the urban area there that, we, that may look like drought deaths, but often they're not. So here we see a death of, this is a newly landscaped uh, median strip and here we see these rapid deaths of these young eucalypts. Okay, and, and most people would think that that's drought. But when you look at the base of these trees and you do the testing, you realise it's actually Phytophthora that's either come in, was there, but it certainly rapidly girdled those trees and killed them. Now, now the drought might play a role, but certainly without that Phytophthora, those trees would, would still be healthy. We look at the, the healthy ones, no lesions. Here, Casuarina near the river, number of them declining, and sometimes only half of the tree declining. Others healthy. Three species of Phytophthora we've got to get out of, of that area. In a, it's a, a, an area that's prone to inundation, flooding, and had a huge flooding event. Okay, and we, we found three species, two of those are being described at the moment and one is yet to be described. So we don't really know anything about them. We don't know really what they're doing. We know they're there. We know they're associated with, with lesions. We don't know a lot else about them. Again, here's a, a flowering gum, a Carimbia physifolia. One side of the trees died. Someone said that, you know, that's the, the new limestone wall that was put in that's damaged the root system and so on. Big girdling lesion, okay? It's a pathogen that's attacked the base of the tree. So there are numerous examples. Here we see a large river red gum in a car park, thinning. Again, large lesions at the base. Here we see a, a verge tree, Crimbia physifolia, nutrient deficiency symptoms, thinning crown. We find a Phytophthora species at the base. We see hail damage in that tree as well. So there's a, it can be quite complex. So just in the last 18 months or so, of looking through the Perth urban area at some of these, these tree declines, we've recovered six different species of Phytophthora from those various hosts. Two of these are undescribed. A number of the others are being described. This one was described a couple of years ago, a student of mine. They're there. We don't know a lot about them. And how devastating will they be? And some of these, we know they swim down the waterways. We know they hybridise and form new species. So that's quite alarming. So how do we manage them? Well, I think hygiene is critical. Here, a, uh, a, a tributary of the Mekong in Laos, where they're doing some work. So the water's being taken into uh, the nursery it's being used on their seedlings. Okay, we sample the water that's going into the nursery. Again, pathogens there that are affecting the roots of these trees. So already, those trees are predisposed to probably a short life. 
a lot of effort going into planting them, managing them, and so on. Replanting them. Okay. So what happens when we have fungi fruiting up the tree? Well, we cut that tree down with armillaria, and we chip it and take it away. What are we doing? Exactly. Some people think that you can't move some of these pathogens if you don't take soil. But of course, you're moving the pathogen. So this nursery hygiene is critical. So when you see you know, nurseries growing stock in soil rather than above the ground, you know, major problems can occur. Pots on the ground, again, potential for disease to come in, devastating. Not just for the nursery, but for all the, the areas where they're being planted. Here, poor stock, root-bound, J-rooted. Okay, that's a tree, a number of years old. Dug it up. You know, it's never going to do well. And I, I really believe that in the urban area, people should be planting seedlings, which are a lot cheaper and are going to do a lot better if they're looked after in the first year or so, through the first summer than advanced trees, which are a lot more expensive, which have been growing in a nursery and often are a poor stock and not adapted to their environment, the, the seedlings will do a lot better in the long run anyway. They'll be, they'll, in, after two or three years, they'll be as big as the advanced tree. And we've shown that. But there seems to be this need for a, an instant, instant effect. So when is treatment an option? Well, in cases where pruning will not work and the tree is moving into a steady state of decline, if there's no other options, you can't access the root zone, uh, chemical, ex chemical exposure is, is a worry and so on. Um, you have to weigh it up. I mean, there are many arborists who won't drill a tree or, or do anything like that to a tree to try and improve its health. But that may actually improve the health of the tree and prevent further pruning and removal in the long run. So would you rather sit there and watch it die over time and keep pruning it or would you rather try something to improve its health? You're wounding it anyway when you're pruning the tree. Okay, so I, I think we have to be often adaptive, creative, try things, you know, to, to see whether they'll work. It's always better to uh, use as a preventative rather than uh, a curative. And then we've heard some, about some of the other options like biocontrol. Now, I think that's quite exciting to think that we can use biocontrols like trichodermas. But relating that to, from the, the lab into the field is a real challenge. That's a real challenge, particularly if you're applying them to the soil and root systems to try and suppress. Okay, there are many other factors that we don't see in the, the, uh, the lab. Uh, but yeah, certainly they've, uh, they've, they show potential. So I think an applied research approach is often good. Um, here's an example. I'll give you some examples now. Defoliation of Eucalyptus rudus, our flooded gum, being hammered by these psyllids, Crease periculosa. Um, we established a trial to see whether there would be some effect of applying treatments to these trees. We applied a range. We had controls. So this is uh, crown health over time. Uh, Pre-treatment in the, the blue-purple and final, sorry, pre-treatment pre measurement and then after, uh, at the end, in about, after about 12 to 18 months. We see the controls, uh, you know, not statistically st uh, significant difference between pre and post-treatment over time in crown health. And we look at the other treatments and some of those show promise. We applied an insecticide, the tree's improved in health. We applied another chemical uh, which showed an improvement in tree health and that chemical there is quite effective against Phytophthora. We'd never isolated Phytophthora from these trees, but it sort of told us, hey, you know, Phytophthora might be present there. So it gave us a bit of a clue that other things might be playing a role. And certainly when further work was done, that was, that was found. Another example, uh, some declining chewets. That's that endemic species, very important. Uh, we applied a range of treatments, it was a preliminary trial a whole range of treatments applied uh, to see what sort of response we would get. After four years, the controls were still uh, a similar state of health, okay? And some of these treatments, the trees certainly recovered, and these are really severely declining large mature trees, okay? And they, later on, after having some of these results, again, 
the, the chemical that had some effect was one that is used to, to try and halt Phytophthora. Told us maybe there is Phytophthora there. It wasn't until eight, 18 months, two years later, we were able to find the species and then describe it. It was one, one of uh, our students, Peter Scott. Again, a rapid decline, and this is a really interesting one, uh, of Carimbia citriodora, the lemon-scented gum. Very severely declining trees in a high-value property. Um, previously misdiagnosis of the causes of that. Further rapid decline as a result. When we went in to have a look, we found it was this combination of the beetle and the fungus. Okay, the, the fungus is uh, not described. The beetle was a fruit tree pinhole borer, Xyloborina saxacini. Okay, applied some different treatments to see what sort of response we would get and we managed to save a lot of those trees. So here you can see an example of the type of death we see in these trees, all sorts of age classes. We see large lesions extending up the tree in the roots, cross sections. This is the, the fungus inside the, the, the stems and we see the necks from the Ceratocystis ophiostoma species. Okay, we apply the treatment to declining trees and we see the result okay, a year later. We've been able to stop the fungus in its tracks and wall, the tree's able to wall it off. You can see here, large lesions extending up the tree, the tree's walled it off, okay, and uh, quite a good result. Another example is the declining jarrahs. This is a jarrah in one of our parks, magnificent trees right near the centre of Perth. Been labelled, the chlorosis of these trees, labelled mandala yellows, chlorotic de decline syndrome, but really it's probably partly lime-induced chlorosis, which has been very well known for a long time in many cases. Very expensive because they need to be pruned and regular, regularly pruned every year. Okay, and we lose these magnificent trees, endemic trees. So we see here the type of symptoms, declining crown, very yellow foliage. Again, declining crowns, very yellow foliage. Okay. But here, different causes for this. Same symptom, different causes. We apply different treatments. Okay. We can clearly see here, this tree's still yellow, this one's green. Okay. And that, that was the same pattern across a whole number of individuals. So th there are things we can do. So what's the future? I believe it's... Uh, it's Incredibly challenging. Climate change is a major concern, as I've discussed. There'll be new interactions between hosts and the pests and the pathogens and the abiotic factors. Okay, increased amount of dead wood means more money, okay, if we don't do something about it. Increased pruning means increased carbon loss, increased carbon footprint to do that. Matching the species to the site will be incredibly important, given it's a drying climate. We need to think really hard about that. The correct diagnosis and management is very important and uh, there should be lots of research on this, this research focusing on the interaction between those abiotic and biotic factors. A lot more work should be done on how they're spread and they survive. We see mulch here being spread under these trees. Are we spreading pathogens? Again here, advanced trees brought in, okay, really struggling, root bound, pathogens at the base and here a tree, a large chewet, big armillaria, a scar up this tree. We isolated Phytophthora from a couple of neighbouring dying trees. Those trees were chipped up, put in that truck and taken away. And this, this was up metres up the tree, the, the pathogen. So what, what's going to happen to that mulch and what's it going to do? Need to think harder about that. Prevention is better. Education is really important. I think we need to really work hard with the, the contractors and the people out there on the ground to to, to let them know about this. Uh, and how do we control and eradicate? And there, there's some work being done on eradication. So just in conclusion, the field of forest pathology is incredibly challenging. Okay, we've, we've seen that. There's a lot we don't know and a lot we need to do. Advanced trees and poor nursery stock, I believe, can result in many health uh, disorders and uh, can be very expensive and labour intensive in the long run. Development around these existing woodland trees requires very careful planning. Okay, and this urban environment already predisposes trees to, to premature decline. We must always think about the disease triangle, the interaction between the host pathogen and the environment. 
And many of these factors, such as waterlogging, drought and so on, can be triggers for the onset of disease. Many of these diseases and pests are already there, they're simply opportunistic. And just finally, this accurate diagnosis requires a knowledge of the history and a range of techniques. I think hygiene is critical. So when we go into a site now, we're assuming based on the disease symptoms it might have a pathogen. So we're always sterilising before we move on to the next one. Many of these diseases can be spread via nursery stock and mulch. And I think there's many advantages to treating trees rather than just continually pruning the dead wood out. Okay, we need to think about how we can try and stop that. Climate change will result in many new and challenging diseases. There's no doubt about that. Pathologists will be kept very busy for many, many years to come. Okay, working on this interaction, prevention, control and eradication. And finally, it's the main message, far more research is required. Okay, because there's so much we don't know. Thank you. This concludes Paul Barber's talk on diagnosing and managing tree decline in the urban environment. If you would like to learn more about diagnosis and management, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including the Guide to Plant Health Care and online learning courses, General, Abiotic, and Biotic Disorders. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for the quiz is SA6361. Again, SA6361. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees you know we can, work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge, traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.